You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right, folks, Victoria here. I have something pretty disgusting to start us off with this week. Oh, good. Yeah, you never bring us the, the disgusting, really nasty stuff, do you, Victoria? It's never I, something I you do. I feel like it's becoming a specialty of mine. <laughs> Is this because you have I'm twins? Gonna, I do have to deal with a lot of bodily fluids every day. So maybe there's something to that, Rachel. Um, well, I'm going to start this week off with a story about Rick Beatty, an unassuming 32-year-old bank worker living in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Uh, One evening in 2013, he made a trip to his local Tesco supermarket, and um, he was feeling like he wanted some fish for his supper. So he picked up a whole sea bass from the fish counter, and he took it home. He began to clean it, and during that process, he he picked it up by its tail and shook it gently. And as he did that, something popped out of its (laughs) mouth. Oh, Uh uh-oh. No. (laughs) Yes. To (laughs) To his disgust, it looked like as he put it, something out of a horror film. It was uh, a pale louse-like creature with uh, quite a few legs. I have sent uh-huh. you guys some photographs. Um, um, I already know if you want to open that up, take now. a look. I'm looking. I Oh, I hate oh. this. Oh, oh <laughs> I don't like this at all. Oh, no. Oh, uh, what? Uh, Why is there a clown with you? Yeah, would you care to describe oh. it? What, what, I, what I'm seeing in this first photo Looks like a, a fish, but it has what I would only describe as a giant white cockroach. <laughs> you know, I filling see its that. mouth like, it, like instead of a tongue, I see like legs. A, a white cockroach. Yeah, if you can imagine taking your whole tongue in your mouth and replacing it with a cockroach of that size, that was like an albino cockroach. That's that's how I would describe it. I that's, hate Rachel? that. That's very descriptive. <laughs> I don't know if I yeah, can talk that. I hate that. that that's my description. That That's very accurate. Yeah, it looks like it literally replaced the tongue and it has like a little black spot, which I'm assuming are eyes, but it definitely has like thicker yeah, two of them. legs than like a cockroach. Oh, I don't like this. Yeah, I'm feeling even like more gross this. out now, actually, because I, I am a little phobic about cockroaches. So that's an accurate are you, description. Uh, and do you I'm have an issue with cockroaches now? in your mouth, Victoria? Is that, is that a no-go? Oh. I guess because it's this. I'm assuming from this photo that this animal, this louse, is alive and like moving around inside the mouth. It could be. They do live oh, on. Um, so this I this creature is, uh, yeah. Its name, its scientific name is Cymothoa exigua. <clears throat> Say that five times fast. Um, but it's no. otherwise known uh-uh. as the tongue-eating louse. Mm-hmm. Wait, I'm sorry. Full stop. The tongue eating louse. It eats yep. tongue. That is horrifying. Oh, we'll get to that. We will get to that. It is not, in fact, a louse, though. It's um, a louse is an insect. The you know, like human head lice and body lice. Those are insects. 
The tongue-eating louse is an isopod crustacean, so it's in the same group of animals as lobsters and crabs, um, but it's more closely related, related to other isopods, um, some of which are land-dwelling. So if you turn over a log in a forest, you'll see little wood lice and roly-polies. Those are also isopods, but they're not okay. parasites. Um, this is a parasite uh, on several species of fish, including sea bass, uh, red snapper, a tasty, delicious, yummy fish. And, Very tasty, um, Mrs. Weaver. Yep. Yeah, clownfish, like like Nemo from Finding Nemo. I love clownfish. I don't. I don't recall Nemo having something living in its mouth, though. Yeah, I no. think Disney would have shied away from that, maybe. Just. I would assume yeah, it was a it parasite. Turned off the kiddos. Huh. So these uh, Simothoa is uh, really, really got some extraordinary things going on with it. They are all born male. Scientists believe. And they enter a fish by the gills, which is actually a pretty common way for a fish to enter a parasite. Um, and you mean a parasite the... to enter a fish? Yeah, what did I say? You said the other <laughs> way. Yeah. A fish to enter a parasite. Yeah, that's, that <laughs> would be a great. tough way. <laughs> <laughs> for a parasite to enter a fish. Uh, if no female is already in the fish, one of the males can actually become female as it grows larger, as it gets larger than 10 millimeters one centimeter, uh, then the female will travel to the fish's mouth and it uses its little pinchy French front legs to cut off the blood supply to the tongue, which then atrophies because it has no, no blood no, to no, it, no. and the tongue no. will fall off, ah. leaving oh, a, a little gosh. stump it went there. to which the louse attaches itself with its <gasps> other legs. Um, it uses its legs to hold onto the stump and then it hangs out in the fish's mouth, feeding on blood and mucus. But as horrifying as this sounds, it's actually not apparently not that bad for the fish because the louse replaces the, the function tongue. of the fish's tongue. Oh, it will oh do my. all the things that a fish's oh. tongue does, which I don't know oh. what all those things are. I assume helping it swallow its food. Who knows? Probably scientists. But um, it does that, and apparently if if a fish only has one of these lice in its mouth, it isn't too much worse for the wear. If it has two or more, it can be kind of underweight. But, you know, they survive. You don't say. Really? It's yeah. only sucking yeah. blood out of where its tongue used to be. Oh, Rachel. Rachel, no, no, no. You weren't paying attention. Blood and mucus. Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> I am properly horrified right now and very conscious of my own tongue. <laughs> well... Ah. Take comfort, take comfort. They are not harmful to humans unless you, you try to grab one, in which case it might bite you. But they are, in fact, even eaten um, in some cultures, apparently. And cooked isopods, I've been told, taste like shrimp. I don't think I'd want to try that out myself, but, you know, uh, it's not poisonous. There was this guy who tried to, to sue, uh, I think, a, a supermarket that sold him a fish that had one of these in his mouth, claiming he'd been poisoned and the lawsuit was thrown out because they are not toxic. In That's point of fair. fact, um, one last little little uh, factoid here. Some small number of you may have seen a uh, pretty low-grossing horror film from 2012 called *The Bay*. I had not heard of this film until I started researching this topic. I'm a big old but, chicken. Uh, yeah, it takes place it takes place in the Chesapeake Bay, a small town which is uh, quite a polluted town, and the water around it being polluted apparently has some mutated Simothoa, which then wipe oh, out no. all the humans in the town 
Oh, of course. Yeah. And do you know that they're inf infected because they have like a little wiggling mouth thing? Well, from from the Wikipedia page, it sounded like they more got a horrible blistering rash. Um, but they didn't do I, I their can't research. believe the filmmakers okay. would have. Okay, movie writers, take note. Uh, this movie, they need this needs to happen. The uh, tongue eating louse <coughs> horror movie needs to come about. Yeah, I mean, I would like to think that the the filmmakers would have seized on that detail. I, if any of our listeners have seen this, that would have been better. Please. Contact yeah, us out. on social media and, and let us know, because I'm not sure I'm willing to watch this movie, but I would like to know this point. Yeah. I do have some friends um, who are big horror movie people who hopefully listen. This movie starred us. nobody I had ever heard of. And it that's grossed like a $2 million. Yeah. So hmm. anyway, bad. that's uh, that's all I have on you for tongue eating lice today. <laughs> I'm just so glad it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't inhumans. <laughs> That's all I can say. I'm going to have an existential crisis about my tongue now. Thanks, Victoria. You are quite welcome. After we come back from the break, it'll be Kirk. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. Well, Victoria took us into the ocean. I'm going to take you up into space. We're, you know, and as a naturalist, I uh, take a broad view, so I, I do enjoy things on Earth, but also uh, I study the entire universe really as a naturalist, and I include all the stuff up in the cosmos as well. So I want to tell you about one of the strangest things out there in the cosmos, and that is neutron stars. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we're going big here. So these are not really stars at all, uh, which is kind of surprising. They're not stars in the way we usually think of them. Uh, they're actually the leftover remains of the cores of stars that have gone supernova and exploded. So a uh, supernova, in essence, has two parts. There's first a large dying star starts to collapse in on itself very rapidly with tremendous speed. And then when this happens, there's enormous compressional forces on the core of the star. And there's sort of a bounce back off that core that then sends the outer layers rebounding out in that classic supernova explosion. Uh, please understand, I am grossly simplifying this process. Yeah, because it all <laughs> depends. Well, it depends on like the size of the star, right? Okay. Right, right. So I'm actually not interested in the explosion part of it. So that's why I'm glossing over that. Um, it's the enormous compression force that we need to look at today because that's what causes this neutron star to form out of the core of what used to be the star. So uh, a massive a star that's, we think, maybe about anywhere from 8 to 30 times the size of our sun, which we conveniently <laughs> call one solar unit, uh, is what uh, these are made out of. Now, keep in mind, one of the reasons the star dies out is that all the lighter elements that can be fused together for fuel have run out. So the core has now mostly been fused into iron, and no matter how hard you compress it together, it doesn't want to fuse into something else. Uh, so a tremendous force is applied to that core, and the atoms are pressed together so tightly, they can basically no longer be atoms. They actually overcome the forces that keep more than one atom from being in the same spot at the same time. 
And, uh, an atom is made up of three parts, neutrons, protons, and electrons. And at these pressures, electrons and protons are basically pushed together and actually are transformed into more neutrons. And they really? hang out with the other neutrons wow. from all the atoms that were there. And what you're basically left with is this super giant, hot, rotating ball of pure neutrons. Hence so a neutron, neutron star, star is called it because it's literally, yeah, it's literally just neutrons. Keep in mind, it's not atoms at this point. No. Because atoms are made up of new, those things. My, so it's, my mind is collapsing. Yeah, it's a giant. Supernova, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a giant ball of just neutrons. I mean, that, and technically, yeah, you guys, there's some other little things and there are some electrons on the surface. But for the most part, we, it's basically just neutrons. Um, and we actually know the size of this. It's, it can be anywhere from about 1.4 to two times the size of our sun. But it's the like that compressed core of what used to be a much bigger star. Right. Okay. Now there's no fu there's no fusion going on. So no. there's no longer an energy source. It isn't plasma. So that's why it really isn't a star, even though we call it one. It's basically it's hot from the explosion that that was, you know, created, uh, created it. But after millions of years, they do eventually cool off. Uh, and some people have compared it actually more to a giant supermassive single atom than anything else. Because it's mm -hmm. actually more similar to a giant atom than it is to, well, anything else in the universe. Yeah, a star. Giant um, neutron starium. Yeah, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it makes some sense for visual visualization purposes to us non-astrophysicists. All right, so we got over kind of how it's made. Now I want to get to the weird stuff. Because that's I'm not sorry, the that wasn't that was already weird, the weird stuff. It's, I know. It's All literally right. neutron a stars. Giant atom. But not an atom because yeah. there's no protons but and electrons. Here's the deal. Neutron stars are dense, like really, really dense. So how dense mm -hmm. are they? Picture the entire mass of between 1.4 and 2 suns worth of material that has mm -hmm. been compressed into an area only 12 kilometers across. For those of you who <laughs> don't do metric, that's Ooh. 7 miles. Oh, my goodness. To so take a star twice the size of the sun and push it down into a ball seven miles wide. <laughs> that's not, that's not like a, 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 I'm not trying to tell you about scale. That's actually how big neutron stars are. They're about what? seven miles wide. So they are very small objects. Like radius uh, or diameter? Uh, the, uh, the diameter is seven miles what? or 12 kilometers. So <laughs> they're, they're really dense, Rachel. Okay. And, if you were, for, for reference, by the way, the moon is 3,400 kilometers across. So this is basically more like the size of a, a medium-sized city than it is yeah. anything else out there in space. Uh, if you were to take a teaspoon, just one little tiny teaspoon of a neutron star, it would weigh 10 million tons. <laughs> or that's 20 billion pounds. That one... <laughs> That's I one don't teaspoon. have a reference. One teaspoon is 20 billion pounds. I don't um, have a reference a good chance... for how money that, how, how heavy no, that is. No. Uh, there's actually a good chance, though, that if you had that teaspoon, obviously you couldn't lift it up, but if you were to somehow magically lift it up and then drop it, uh, it when it hit the ground, it would shoot through the ground uh, and sink down to the core of our planet because it's so yeah, dense. It that teaspoon, right. Yeah, it would be, yeah. So uh, lucky for us, you cannot actually take a teaspoon of material out of a neutron star because <laughs> it's only say. it's only that dense. 
it's only that dense because of the presence of all the other matter in that ball. Like if you took it out, it would expand again once it's no longer amongst the gravitational force of the other neutrons that are there. So it would blow uh, up so in your face, basically. It would. It would actually be, uh, if you were somehow able to take that teaspoon out and pull it out, it would be like one of the biggest explosions you could possibly imagine. So kids, don't try this at home. Um, if you can imagine I mean, the gravity of such a dense object. Good luck. Yeah, I and mean, if you want to try, you would instantly die when you even go near this thing. But the, the gravity of such a dense object is mind-bogglingly strong. If you were to drop a marble, all right, from the height of one meter above the surface of a neutron star, it would rocket toward it so fast, it would be going 1,400 kilometers per second when it hit. <laughs> now, we are exceptionally bad at both metric and things measured in distance per second. So let me put that in miles per hour for you. That'd be great. That's 3,131,711 miles per hour. I don't think that helps. In the, in the space of one meter. So it accelerates rather fast uh care to compare you that don't to the speed say. of light for us yeah so i mean it's um in in miles per hour yeah it's like 670 million so it's a per that would be a percentage of the speed of light uh incidentally some of these also uh neutron stars are rotating and some of them actually rotate at a good fraction of the speed of light they are some of the fastest rotating objects in the entire universe this does um, not surprise me yeah so <clears throat> Uh, the gravity is actually so strong, though, that the marble would not actually make it to the surface. The gravitational forces would pull it apart into a single stream of atoms and then pull the atoms apart into neutrons, electrons, and protons. So it's actually all the electrons, neutrons, and protons of the marble that would actually hit at that speed because nothing can withstand those kind of tidal forces going that fast. Um, well, not I shouldn't say nothing. You can no, literally uh, material, watch no material objects that we are familiar with. Uh, no, you couldn't watch because it would happen like so instantly fast. Oh, um, my marble. So gravity, gravity the strong also does weird things to light. So we think of light as traveling in straight lines here on Earth, but light is actually made of particles called photons, uh, and they can be affected by gravity. So light can actually be bent and go into orbit around a neutron star. <laughs> That's how strong the gravity is, okay? Uh and this leads to something very strange that when you, if you look at a neutron star, it is bending the light coming off it so that you can actually see the front and the back of the star at the same time. And no matter which angle you look, you are seeing the front and the back of it at the same time, which hurts your brain. The best way I can explain it is think about it. Have you seen any of these old classic like maps of the earth where it's a circle, but they've sort of stretched the projection so that all of the surface of the Earth is within that circle. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? And it's really like the further you get to the edge, the more hyper distorted it is. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of like what, what happens. The light coming off the back is bent around to the front, and then it comes at us so you can actually see it. And now, here's the deal, though. It's... Um, it's a pretty surf. It's like a featureless surface to this thing, so there's not actually anything to see. So this is sort of a, a theoretical kind of thing, but it's it's technically true that light from the back is is also shining at you when you're looking at the front, which is mind-boggling. So have astronomers located an actual neutron star? Absolutely. There, there's some of the brightest, uh, like in the radio spectrum, some of the brightest uh, uh, things in the sky. If you've ever heard of a pulsar, oh so yeah, pulsars are are also rapidly spinning neutron stars that are giving off radio frequencies and they may be going like 
get this very fast beep. Every one of those beeps is when it has rotated around. Oh so it gives my you an goodness. idea of how fast, how fast these things are rotating. Um, some of them can be slower as well. Um, but the ones, if you hear, if you want, if you hear about pulsars, pulsars are neutron stars. They're just spinning neutron stars that are also giving off a lot of um, detectable like radio waves, basically. So they're one of the weirder things in the entire universe, uh, maybe only superseded by black holes, which is what happens if the neutrons sink even further into a, you know, a smaller ball, basically, or a singularity, a point. But uh, they're some of the most fascinating things out there. So I wanted to share them with you. That's I, so fascinating. My mind is quite blown. I yeah, but just don't, don't put your mind near a neutron star. It won't end yeah. well. No, I'd like to stay far away. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Naturalist Rachel. All right, Victoria and Rachel, let me ask you a question. How does my beard look today? Am I allowed to say it looks on fleek? Sure. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, <laughs> right before we started today, I gave it a I gave it a brushing with my awesome beard brush from ecocasion.com. It's a wonderful shaving accessory that makes me look my best. I use it along with my boar hair shaving brush, all natural shaving soaps, and beautiful metal single blade razor. It's been a tough year. Taking a few minutes to make yourself look good, whether it's for a Zoom call or for a spouse or just for yourself, is important. All my favorite shaving gear for men can be found over at ecocation.com. Their team has scoured their world for the nicest, most sustainably designed shaving products so you can know you are looking good while also keeping the planet healthy. I'll never go back to those nasty, scratchy, disposable razors again. I don't care how many cheap blades they keep sticking on there, they'll never give as nice a shave as a good quality single blade razor. Head on over to ecocation.com, that's E-C-O-C-C-A-S-I-O-N.com to try them out for yourselves. And while you're there, use the code STRANGE at checkout for our special discount. Alrighty, so I bet you all are just a buzz trying to figure out what my topic is today. Especially after was hearing that, about. Does it have to do with bees? Was that a pun? I, I mean, I was working really hard on this topic for litting from source to source. But don't just get up all in my beeswax. I'll tell you, it's honeybees. Oh. You guys already guessed it. Yeah, it's honeybees. <laughs> oh, are there? Are, how many more puns are there, Rachel? I, I decided What's to so put them weird all about honeybees? What's so what's okay, you, not weird you front loaded them all. That's good. Yeah, I front loaded them all so that way people didn't hate me too bad, but I had to get all these puns in. Okay. So honeybees are bizarre anyway. Like they are a really interesting flying insect. I actually used to be super afraid of them and then I learned more about them and started helping tend to them at different nature centers and that really has helped me like get over that a lot of people have fears over honeybees because they think that they're going to sting them honeybees are not going to sting you unless you really have bothered them uh so they're a flying insect they're related to ants and wasps uh they survive off of nectar and pollen they're super important pollinators that's been really big in the news recently of we got to save the bees super important i'm focusing on honeybees a lot of and actually a very specific type of honeybee. But before I get into all of that, I'm going to go into the general social structure and what makes a honeybee a honeybee. So okay. they start off 
like obviously they are big pollinators and they collect all that nectar and pollen and to make honey and pretty much when they're making honey and fanning their when they're making honey what they're doing is they have special honey stomachs they pretty much throw the nectar up into a little spot or into Ew. another honeybee who puts it in their honey stomach and then eventually it goes into a part of a comb in the in the hive itself and they fan it really really fast and eventually it becomes honey Pretty much what they're doing is they're using that so that way it can be eaten later. So it's kind of like how we pickle things uh, or can fruit for the winter time, right? Very similar. Mm -hmm. Now, honeybees are social insects and they live in a colony and that colony is generally called a hive. They like to be in, unlike a lot of cartoons with that cartoonish looking hive, um... What they'll do is they actually try to find things like uh, tree hollows and they'll form it inside of those things. They don't like to create an external hive. What those particular uh, cartoons are based off of is actually uh, paper wasps uh, who make very similar shaped uh, hives. Bald-faced hornets nest. Ah, that's it. Yes, bald-faced hornets. So, but we're not talking about those. We're talking about honeybees. So, they're made up of three different types of honeybees. There's a queen who lives anywhere from four to seven years. And she's the only one to lay eggs. And she lays up to 1,500 eggs a day. Now, they can create... That's so many eggs. (laughs) They can create a new queen when that queen gets old... Uh, they, the nurse worker bees, which is another type of honeybee, they will feed an egg, a larva, uh, royal jelly. And when they feed that royal jelly, they'll become a new queen and that queen will then fly off, take some workers and drones with her and make a new hive. So there are worky bee, worker bees, which are also female. Uh, what we designate as female anyway. And they do all the work around the hive. They live about 45 days. They Some of them are going to be feeding larvae. Some are going to be tending the queen who is laying all, oh, excuse me, all of these eggs. Some are cleaning the hive. Others are collecting food. Others are guarding the colony. And others are building the honeycomb. Those are the ones that are able to sting, um, but if they do, the stinger will literally pull the guts out of the honeybee. Now, I'm sure all both of you know this, as we are naturalists, we tend to have a lot of bees. Um, the next type of bee is a drone. Now, these are the male. Uh, their only job is to mate with queens of other hives. So they're produced by either the worker bees or the queen bee laying eggs that are unfertilized. So they don't get any male product. So because of that, <laughs> they, they don't have, they're unfertilized eggs and they instantly are just male. So they don't, they don't have all of the genes. So they end up, they're pretty much clones 
of the queen themselves. They don't have a mix of their genetics. So their only job is to go out and mate with a queen bee somewhere and another hive. Well, that, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of the fact that they only have her DNA. So mm-hmm. like they're not going to want to mate with, with her because that would be mixing the same. They want to find another queen who would have totally different DNA. That makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Now, this isn't mainly what I wanted to talk about today. What I want to talk about is how a lot of this, there's multiple types of honeybees. We're more common, we're more, not common, we're more used to the European honeybee that's often used in the U.S. agricultural system. The one I'm going to touch on is the Japanese honeybee, the Asian honeybees. Okay. 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 Now, Asian honeybees have to deal with some different predators than the European honeybees, such as maybe you heard of it. The uh, there's a killer bee hornet, killer wasp, the murder hornet. That was the murder hornets that came over uh, way about a year or so ago. Uh, they are really common in Asia. Obviously, that's where they're from. So the honeybees that are there had to develop a mechanism to keep themselves safe and to prevent this from happening. Now, hornets and bees have different temperatures that they're able to withstand. Um, So what honeybees will do is they'll do one of two different things. And one is actually a more recent one that I don't think either of you know. So honeybees will, the Japanese honeybee, they will go and once they discover the hornet in their hive, because the hornet is there to either steal honey or eat the bees, they will, honeybees will send out a distressed pheromone and they will mob the hornet. Hmm. And when they're mobbing the hornet, what they're able to do is they're able to vibrate their bodies so quickly that they're raising the temperature in the air. Now, because they're raising that temperature, they're actually, they get up to 117 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. That's very hot. It's very hot. It's actually called a bee ball, which I think is really hilarious. I don't know why. <laughs> it's, sure, it's just a ball of bees. And they, some of them will die if they're at the very center with the hornet. But what will happen is... That heat range, that 117, is just outside of the tolerant, the heat tolerance of the hornet. So the hornet will actually be cooked to death. They will kill it oh. by making oh. it so hot. That's awesome. Wow. That, that's, that's the defense mechanism that I, that I have heard of. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious what the other one is. So the reason why behind this defensive mechanism is because there's, the honeybee stingers are so small that they're not able to penetrate the exoskeleton of the hornet itself. And because that's the general primary way honeybees defend themselves and defend the hide, hive, they had to come up with something else. And so this was one way that they're able to do. However, scientists have also found in Vietnam and Southeast Asia that the honeybees there have figured out that if they coat the beehive entrance entrance with animal dung or feces it 
will prevent the hornets from going into their hive. This is the first instance that we have and the first evidence that bees can use tools because they are able, they're not using their wow. own dung. They're using an, other animal dung from like chickens or cows or deer, whatever they can find. And they will coat the entrance to prevent the, it prevents the hornets from going in because they don't think it's a beehive. Is poop wow. a tool? I mean, <laughs> okay, that hold on. That is the episode title right there. Is, is poop a tool? tool? Now, that's a great question. I don't think poop is the tool. I think them collecting it and then putting it up. I feel I feel like it's almost like paint or um sort Rachel, of Rachel is 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 the hammer the tool or is the putting up the picture the tool? It's a good question. Yeah, I think the poop is the tool. I think that's the poop the is the tool. So, but that's all I have for you both today. I wanted to touch on just the defensive mechanisms of some honeybees, which are just fascinating and bizarre. Wow. Yeah. I There's so many places to go with that. I'm so glad that bees don't form bee balls around us. That'd be great. Walk that it's well, well, it would not be great, Rachel. It's great that they don't. Uh, I'm also really glad that people don't use that tool to protect their homes or businesses. Cause (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure it would work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's been many, many a porta potties where I've walked by and gone. Nope. Nope. Not going in there. So see, it's our similar, similar strategy. Do you ever walk past somebody's house and, and you can tell just by looking that it's it's kind of a hoarder house and that yes. there's probably right, yeah, like fifty two cats in there. That's kind of the same thing. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah, we're not so different from bees, you guys. Should have guessed. <laughs> Simply stunning. I think we're gonna have to wrap up right there. That's yeah, it. Thanks are. for getting together today, everybody. Yeah, thanks everyone. It was great. Thanks everyone for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.